Tiferes B'nai Torah presents The Shmooz, an engaging and motivating Musr and Hashkafa series that deals with real-life issues. The famous Gemara in Avodah Zorah that brings down an event about a person called Rabelazabar Dudia. Rabelazabar Dudia began as Eliezer ben Dudia, a plain person. But not a plain person in the sense of a regular Jew. The Gemara tells us about him, He did not leave one zona, not one prostitute in the world with whom he did not live. I don't know if that means literally, but certainly this was his reputation. This was the man. He was a connoisseur. He went to all lengths to make sure that every zone he heard about, he would live with. Pam Achas, one time, Shamashi, Zona Achas, Bekarachayayam. He actually heard about a zona once who was over the Karachayayam, meaning at a, she was on an island. She was far away. And her fee for services was a purse full of gold coins. What did he do? Not all kistinorim. He took the purse of gold. No sooner did he hear about it than he set out on his road trip. And the Gemara tells us, shiva noros." He passed seven rivers. She wasn't close. It wasn't just that he was willing and on the drop of a hat to go. It wasn't that he was willing to spend money. He traveled length, far away, and he went to this zona. He paid the fee, and in fact. The Gemara tells us, Bishas Hergaldova, when he was living with her, he ficha, she passed gas. Amra, she said, Keshem Shefiha Zuena Khazeras Lamakomas, just as this gas will not return to its place, Kacheloza Bendodia and Mikablan Sobichuva. So to Eloza Bendodia they will not accept in Bichuva. Rather unusual words for a zona to be saying, but apparently these words penetrated to the core of his essence. And he got the message. He got the point. And he left her, and he recognized what he had to do. He sat down between two mountains. And Omar, he said, Mountains, ask Rachamim for me, please. Omrulo, they said to him, Before we could ask for you, we have to ask for us. Amar Shemayim Varetz, he said, Shemayim Varetz, heaven and earth, Bikshu Alayrachamim, ask forgiveness of me. Amru, they said, Ashenu Vakshim Alecha, Nevakesh Alatzmenu, before we could ask for you, we have to ask for ourselves. He turns the Chamal of the Levana, the, the moon and the sun, Bikshu Alayrachamim, ask for Rachamim. Same answer. And the Mashah explains what actually was happening was he recognized that what was in front of him was a very, very difficult task. For him to do tshuva was something that might potentially cause him to die. And he asked those which are permanent, Shemayim Va'aretz, for help, the spiritual koach, whatever that means. In any case, they said they can't help. It's only dependent on me. It's up to me. He understood there's no hope. No one else to help him. It's up to me. He placed his head between his knees. And he raised his voice in bitter tears. He began crying. Until he died. He was so racked with pain, with charata, with 
just remorse of what he did, that he literally, his neshama left him. And the Gemara tells us, Yosa Baskol, a Baskol came out. When he died, a Baskol came out. Va'amra, ben Dudi is prepared for Olam Haba. Bacha Rebbe, when Rabbi Yehuda Nasi heard this event, he began crying. The Amar, he said, Yesh kon There are some who take many years to be koned the Olam Haba. Yesh kon And there are some who are koned the Olam Haba in Mamish in one minute. The Amar Rebbe, and Rebbe went on to say, more than that. Lo dayan labali tshuva shemakablinson. It's not enough that they accept bali tshuva, but elashikonos a Rebbe, but they actually call him Rebbe. And if you know, in the time of the Gemara, the, the term Rebbe, the smicha, was a very, very exclusive term that was only used on very, very holy people. Not only did they accept him with tshuva, but they gave him this title of honor, Rebbe. And Rabbi Huda Nasi cried. Now this is our Gemara, and I'd like to spend a little time breaking this into its component parts, analyzing and see what we can take in terms of understanding. So let me just make one observation first. Number one, this man was not lazy. Seven rivers means a long, arduous task. A long, long, long haul. Meaning typically when you think of a Baal Taiva, you think about a fat, lazy guy who's ahead in this, whatever pleasure I'm into, so he's, he's just... That wasn't Elizabeth Dudia. He was... I don't know how to say it other than he was clinging, he was odduk, he was like so into taiva that first the Gemara says he didn't leave a zona in the world and then he heard about the zona, what does she charge? I don't care, let me travel, seven rivers. Not only that, the morale makes an interesting observation. We spend our life trying to fulfill the Ahavta Shem Lekecha B'cholavavcha B'cholnafshecha B'cholmiyadecha Twice a day we say it, we try to live that, to love Hashem with our heart, to give up our life, all our money. Says the morale, Elizabeth Dudia did that, except the exact opposite. The reason why the Gemara picked this event to show you who he was, was because he was a man who so clung to Taiva that he was willing to give up his life. Seven rivers is a difficult, dangerous task. Money didn't matter. Everything that he had, he was dovek to taiva. Says the Maral, had he died before doing tshuva? Let's say the, the woman didn't say what she said, and let's say he just died a natural death. Says the Maral, he would have died like a behema. When a behema dies, there's nothing that goes to Olam Haba, because the behema is just, there is a nefesh. While it's alive, it has a soul in the sense that it has a automatic responses and has, is, is programmed. But when a cow dies, the soul, the neshama just evaporates. Elizabeth Dudya had so eradicated any kedusha in his essence that had he died before doing tshuva, his neshama just would have evaporated. It would have been like dust. According to morale, he was on probably the lowest level that any human being can attain. And I think if we take nothing else, just one observation before we really get into things. One observation is that people sometimes make a mistake about tshuva. Listen, after what I've done, after what I've been through, for me, tshuva really isn't so pushit. In other words, like, listen, there are plenty of guys who can, but Rabbi, if you've seen what I've seen, if you've done what I've done, you'll know that tshuva really isn't in the, isn't in the picture. I guarantee you. Find me the worst 
criminal you could ever find in your life, you won't begin to reach the toenails in deprivation and taiva that Rabbi Lazar did. And yet, not only did he do tshuva, he did a tshuva that instantly brought him to Olam Haba, that Rabbi Hudanasi cried about, that he was called the title Rebbe. So again, if nothing else, just the understanding of when you have that sense, and sometimes we have it, no matter where you're at, you sometimes you have a sense, especially when you begin understanding what life's about, and you're kipper, and you start getting serious, and you say, listen, after what I've done, tshuva's not shayach, think one thing, Eliezer Bedudi was way, way, I'm telling you, if you spent your life trying to reach his level of schmutz, of just deviousness, you wouldn't reach it. And yet he did a total, complete tshuva without... Without any ma'akfim, without anything stopping. But I'd like to make a fundamental observation. And that is, what changed? Now here we have a man, this Eliezer Bedudio, who apparently is into this stuff. And it wasn't yesterday that he discovered this lifestyle, and it wasn't the week before. This is something, this is what he's into. And this is what he's been doing for a real long time. This woman says something and all of a sudden, whoa, forget it. My whole life is changed. Puts his head between his knees and starts crying. Until his neshama leaves him. What changed? What happened? As a matter of fact, let's say you walked over to this Eliezer Bedudia a day before and said to him, you know, Eliezer Bedudia, I don't mean to be rude, but I don't think Hashem is going to be very pleased with you. You know, the zona thing is not so good. Oh, you really mean that? You mean, I mean, Hashem doesn't like zonas? Hashem's not into Oh, I never thought of that. Oh my goodness, I'm going to grab a Shari Chuvah, Ben Yonah right now, I'm going to do Chuvah. Yeah, right. I mean, if you went over to Dennis Rodman and said, you know, uh, Dennis, you know, uh, you're going to go to Gehenna for being a bad boy. Oh, I never thought of that. I'm giving up my whole routine right now. I'm going clean, right? It doesn't work that way. Meaning, if you went over to Rabbi Lozabar Dudi and said, you're going to Gehenna, what do you think he would have said? Oh, bug, oh, bug off. Don't bother me with your Muslim stuff. I don't care. I don't, I, either I don't believe in God or if I do believe in God. I, just, I, just, I don't care. So what changed? If five minutes ago, you would have gone over to him, and he would have said, I don't care, I'm not interested, I'm not impressed, I'm not at all... Thank you. I'm not at all inspired by what you're saying. Now all of a sudden he changes so radically, and so dramatically, that his whole life is, is turned upside down. But, but, but what changed? You know what the answer is? The answer is nothing changed, but he hit bottom. He hit Bonham when he heard these words from Azona, and they are unusual words. When Azona says to him these words, just like this won't return to its place, so too you won't return to its place, there's nowhere lower to go. And sometimes it is that you have to hit Bonham to start heading up. But what's ironic is that when he hit Bonham and it finally hit him, and it finally, like he woke up and he finally realized, he didn't then check in to Orsameach. He didn't go to like Aisha Torah Discovery. He didn't then go learn in Yeshiva for 10 years. Meaning, obviously, he knew all of this before. No one sat him down with a program and a plan and explained to him what Taiva is and how it's bad and there's, there's a Masil Shisharim and he's serving Hashem and you're doing the opposite. Nobody sat him down. He heard it and instantly understood the depth of how low he sunk. Instantly understood what he needed to do. So what that means is, obviously, all that knowledge was there beforehand. No one explained it to him. No one started teaching him about it. Meaning what? Meaning as long as he was this Eliezer Berdudia, running after Taivas, running after Zona, doing his whole routine, inside, maybe deep inside, was a very clear understanding that what I'm doing is wrong, 
What I'm doing is damaging to me. And I wish I could change, but I can't. And even if he could never admit those words to you, to me, to anyone else, even if on the outside he would say all these kind of things, like, hey, I don't care about this stuff, this is nonsense, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in Judaism, I don't believe in Torah, whatever, whatever he would have said, they're lies. They're lies, and the proof that they're lies is the minute he got it, the minute he heard it, the minute he understood it, everything became clear. He knew exactly what he had to do, he knew exactly how bad it was, so obviously these were truths that at the core of his essence he knew up until now, but he had denied. And I think it's a very important lesson. We human beings have a tremendous tendency to fool ourselves. We like to believe all kinds of stories and excuses and lies. And once we're in a particular mode of behavior, it's often difficult to break out because we get so accustomed to believing the lines that we tell other people that we start believing in them ourselves. But no matter where a person's at, and again, this is an extreme case, way, way, way beyond anyone will know. But whilst this is an extreme case, I think it's indicative, I think it's illustrative of this concept, that at the core of his essence, a Jew knows, no matter how far he's strayed, he knows exactly what's right, he knows exactly what he should be doing, and even as he's mouthing the words, I remember as a kid, I remember as an 8th grader, giving my Rebbe a tough time, and I remember being the tough kid and playing the role. And as I was saying the words, I knew in my heart I didn't believe them. But I couldn't help myself. I was in this mode. I was in this role. I'm the tough kid. i got to play tough. And I was almost forced by social structure to act in a way that I didn't want to act. Say things I didn't want to say, but that's what I had to do. What Rabbi Elizabeth Dudia did was at this point when it dawned on him when that light bulb went off everything became clear everything that he knew internally for years and years everything that was a part of him and nothing changed other than his understanding and his ability to tap into what he know, knew was always true what was his response? he said the words Ain hadavar tali elabi. it's up to me and me alone and I have to share with you, this is one of the most difficult things to know. You can train, especially if you've ever, if you've ever boxed, if you ever were involved in any martial arts, you know that you can train a fighter. You can train them and they can be skilled and they can be artists. Literally perfect movements. The one thing you can't train is the heart of a person. Meaning no matter how skilled you are, there's a certain point when you get in the ring or you get into a fight and it's up to me. And ain't nobody else. My trainer can't help. The fans can't help. The question is, do I have the guts, do I have the courage, do I have the moral fortitude to stand forward and just hold myself? Ain't dover tole was something that Elizabeth Dudi understood, reached to the core of his essence, and did something that's, I think, historically unprecedented. I don't think any human being ever did this before. I don't think any human being ever reached such depth and then quickly rose to such heights. And again, I think it's a tremendous illustration of the koach of tshuva, just the power. Just understanding how far a human being can sink and how quickly he can use a process of tshuva to rise and bring himself up, I think is very it's educational in terms of what the koach of tshuva is. Okay. Now, I have an observation to make that I think a lot of us have trouble when it comes to the concept of tshuva and especially we're coming up Yom Kippur the main avoda of Yom Kippur is slicha mechila the main job our main mitzvah on Yom Kippur is one thing 
to get tshuva, to ask Hashem forgiveness, to do tshuva on our averas. Rosh Hashanah is about being makabal or malchus, understanding Hashem created and runs the world. Yom Kippur, Yom Slich, Machila, that's the avod of the day, that's the mitzvah of the day to do tshuva. And I think oftentimes one of the obstacles to tshuva is a person will start thinking, think about his ways, think about what he's done, think about where he should be, understand who he is, and he comes to the sense that Hashem is angry with me. And a lot of times I've heard that. I've heard guys say it, or guys think it, Hashem is angry at me. Now, gentlemen, I don't mean this in a rude way, but I have to tell you something bluntly. Please be mochel me for saying it this way, but you're just not important enough for God to be angry at you. Let me say that again. You are not important enough for God to be angry at you. And I'll explain to you what I mean. Hashem created the heavens and the earth and all that it contains. The known universe is 13 billion light years across. There are galaxies and constellations. There's a mass, mass, mass size to this universe that's beyond human comprehension. If you imagine a line traveling out as far as you can, you can't begin to imagine the expanding universe in which we live. Not only did Hashem create that, not only does Hashem maintain that, but Hashem keeps every molecule of this Bria in existence at every any given moment. There are six billion people on this planet. Hashem is intimately involved in all of their lives. There are currents and there are... You can't begin. Open a biology book, open any textbook of science, you'll know all of this is the creation that Hashem created and currently runs. We are but small, tiny little midgets of six billion midgets on a planet and we're just not important enough for God to be angry at us. As a matter of fact, if Hashem was ever really angry at a person, Hashem would never have to punish the person, Hashem would never have to, you know, bring lightning down, Hashem would just evaporate them, they just cease to exist. As a matter of fact, if you want to understand this concept, one of the basic points in Amuna is that nothing can happen in this world without Hashem approving it, saying yes to it, and allowing it to happen. What that means is, if I'm walking on a dark street at night, and some 350-pound fellow pulls out a 45-millimeter gun, holds it to my temple. If it was decreed on Shana, I will die. There's nothing I can do to save myself. But if, in fact, it wasn't, then any number of things will happen, but he will not touch me. The gun will blow off in his hand. He'll drop the gun. Someone will call a false alarm. The entire New York City fire department will show up on that street corner. Anything will happen, but he won't be able to touch me. Why? Because basic Emuna tells us that any event in this world is directly controlled and run by Hashem. Why does somebody get angry? I get angry at you because you did something against my will. I wanted this and you went against my will. You chutzpanyak, you blew my plan, you ruined it. That's impossible with Hashem. You can't violate Hashem's wishes. If Hashem doesn't want you to kill somebody, you will not be capable of killing somebody. Elamai, if you were successful in killing him, means Hashem agreed and nodded and said, yes, it'll happen. If so, it's not possible to get Hashem angry. It's impossible. So, if that's true, what is the whole concept of punishments? What's the whole concept of Gehenna? If Hashem's not angry at me, Hashem's not going to, why should Hashem punish me? What's Gehenna? Punishment in this world, punishment again, is not about revenge <clears throat> and it's not about anger. Punishments are one thing and one thing only. And that is, it helps us, whether it be in this world, helps us understand our direction. It's machaper. In the world to come, it cleans us up. 
but the entire concept of punishments in this world and world to come are not out of anger, not out of revenge, but are things that are done for our good and our benefit. And I'll tell you guys something. I have one scary thought that I, that I often think about. There is, <clears throat> if you guys know, there were about 20 years ago when the computer industry first began, there was something called, well, basically when you wanted to highlight a line, I don't know if you guys know this, but you used to do as follows. Before the line, you would put an open bracket, put BL, close bracket, and that's what you'd see on your screen. But your printer understood from that to bold that line. If you wanted to underline a line, you put open bracket, UL, close bracket, and again, on your screen, that's what you would see, but your printer read that as underline. About 15 years ago, technology advanced, and it came out with something called WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get, where on your screen, you now see what your printer will print, so that when you underline, you see on the screen an underlined line, bold, you see the word in bold. That, to me, is a very apt muscle to what Olam Haba is like. What you see is what you get, meaning, when I leave this earth, my body is left behind, I separate, and you will see me exactly for what I am all my good and all my bad. You will see me stripped, naked, bare. You see, here I could hide behind my heavy coat of physicality and you can't tell what I'm thinking. You can't tell what I did last night. You can't tell what I did two days ago. You can tell what I'm saying. You can tell what I'm speaking. But you don't have a clue to my inner essence. You can't feel what I'm all about. Want to a frightening story? Scary, scary story. The Stipe Lagoon. The stipler was once, a certain fellow went from a kolo in Chicago to Erzstrom, and before he went, it was normal then, people would ask him, if you're going to the stipler, ask, ask for a bracha. So he took a list of anybody who wanted a bracha, all of, you know, whoever wanted a bracha, he wrote, they had them write their name down on a piece of paper. He went to the stipler, and he asked the reshiva for a bracha. So the stipler, if you know, in his older age, days was hard of hearing, and he only looked down. So this fellow comes in and, and asks for a bracha, and he says, and for these people on the, on the piece of paper, so Stipler begins reading the names, and he clearly gets to one name and skips it, goes further down the paper. So the fellow there noticed that the Stipler obviously skipped the name. So he said, children, the Rashiva, but uh, the Rashiva inadvertently missed one of the names. The Stipler looked up and said, I don't give brachas to Boale Nida. I don't give brachas to people who live with nida. The woman is a nida. Again, I didn't say anything, because the stipler was a very, very frightening individual. He just said, yes, Rebbe, and he left. Okay, he comes back to America, and he pulls aside that guy whose name it was, and said, listen, I don't know what to make of this. I don't have a clue what this means. I just, I want to tell you of what happened. I went to the stipler, I read the names, he got to your name, he skipped it. I said, Rebbe, um, you skipped the name, and the stipler said these words. I don't know what they mean. He said, I don't give brachas to people who live with a nida. The guy who he told it to began crying bitter tears, because in fact, somehow it was, he lived with his wife when she was in nida, but the stipler saw it. The stipler knew it. The stipler saw a name and knew it. The stipler would see you and knew what you ate for breakfast yesterday. I knew a man, an autumn girdle, who would not walk into the stipler. Why not? Because, what, am I crazy? The man will see right through me like I'm a piece of glass. Here, in this world, you and I don't see that way. I see your physicality. I see your body. I hear the words you say. But I can't peer into your essence and you can't see into mine. 
and you don't know who I am, and you don't know what I'm thinking, and you don't know what I'm really about. However, once I leave this physical world, once I step out of this goof, you will see me for exactly what I am. Every thought, every action, every conversation makes an indelible imprint in me. And you'll see me exactly for what I am. All the good and all the bad. To be honest with you, it's a frightening thought. Because I don't know about you folks, but I have things that I've thought, that I've said, that I've done, that I'm not proud of. But the problem is they're a part of me. You see, every action, every thought, every conversation makes its imprint on me, shapes me, molds me, and is a part of me. And when I leave this goof, you will see me. But you'll see me for exactly what I made myself into. And that's scary. It's scary because, again, while I've done many things that I'm proud of, I've also done many things that I'm not too proud of. How would you like it if your grandmother knew some of the things you did? Or forget your grandmother, the entire huge assembly of everybody you ever knew. Everybody you ever knew is gathered there staring. Oh, my God, you, you did that? Oh, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I thought it was good. Oh, my God. Hey, come here, look at him. I don't want to be funny, but it's scary. Anything you've done, every thought, every action, every conversation in the dark of night, under the cover when nobody was seeing, nobody knew, it's there. It's there. I'm the aid that's shown to everybody. It's a very, very scary thought. As remarkable as it sounds, there is something called tshuva. Tshuva can and we'll see in a minute, it doesn't make sense, but tshuva somehow can eradicate, can eliminate, can undo that action. Can undo the thoughts, the conversation, the words, the activities, and takes it as out of the world as if it wasn't. You know the, the Mishra Sharm's kasha on tshuvas? says the Mishra Sharm, tshuva makes zero sense. Watch this, he says, take out a gun and you shoot a guy, and the guy's dead. Oy vey, what did I do? I killed the chasati of easy bashati. Oh, now, now he's alive? Now, what, the guy's back alive? You, boel, you live with a woman and have a child who's a mamzer. Live with an agency, he's a child's a mamzer. Oy vey, what did I do? Chasati So now what happens? Now the mamzer is no longer in the world? How could you do tshuva? The Sushem's point is tshuva makes no sense. It can't work. It doesn't make any sense. How do you undo what is there? And the Sushem says, you're right. It doesn't make sense. And it's not supposed to make sense. However, Hashem understands us. Hashem is our creator. And Hashem knows that whilst we may do a lot of good things, we may accomplish great things, we're also going to mess up. And Hashem wanted to allow a system, a method, that we could undo the damage that we've done. That we can undo the, the, the marks, undo the stains on our neshama. And that's the concept of tshuva. Now, I want to share with you guys, you need, you'll forgive me for this, but there are a few talents you need to be an Abba. Some of you guys already are. Um, and I want to teach you one of the talents that you need. One of the talents that you need to be a good Abba, and please pay careful attention to this, is very important. You don't, they don't teach it in Yeshiva, so you better pay careful attention. At all of my children's birthday parties, Abba the Magician would appear. Now, I'm very skilled. Unfortunately, I don't have my white gloves here, so I can't do it the best but at my children's birthday party the fourth or fifth birthday party Abba the magician would appear and you see all the kids lying there and
And all the kids, all the kids, invariably, any four and five year old kid would be laughing hysterically. And now it took them a while to hop where the hand really was there. Not one time I even got brave. What I did was I wore a robe. And at the end of the show, I took the robe off quickly and said, Oh, the magician disappeared. And I had these kids really weren't quite sure. Did he disappear? Did he disappear? Wait a minute. No, no, wait. You didn't disappear. You just. All right, anyway. Let me tell you what happened to me once upon a time at one of the bar mitzvah parties. One at one of the sorry, birth, birthday parties. Somebody decided to videotape this event. Abba doing the finger magic. Okay, very nice. I didn't think about it. After all the kids went home, my parents and my wife went into the den and we put on the video to watch the birthday. And obviously it was a whole birthday party. And then and we got to the part where Abba the magician gets up and I saw on video. And I watched the whole scene. But you know what I'm saying? I was sitting in a chair, and I watched the finger go up, the finger go down, the hand go away. And I said to myself, oh my goodness, this is scary. It's frightening. It was so real, so vivid, so absolutely every single dumb face that I made was played out in technical. I could see it. And I had a tremendous pachad. Because you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand that that's what Yom Adin's about. And Yom Adin, they're going to play a video, but it's not a video, gentlemen. Don't make a mistake. It's not so easy. You see, a video camera can capture the sight. An audio microphone could pick up the sound, but it doesn't pick up the thoughts. On Yom Adin, there'll be a video, an audio, but it won't be a camera. It'll be me. The essence of me will speak out everything that I did in my life, every event, every conversation, but not just the actions the thought track. Not just the video, not just the audio, you get the thought track of what I was thinking. When I was looking like a very generous, good person, and actually I was doing it for cover, or I was doing it to whatever. And again, to me personally, it's a little scary. I discovered something amazing on that camcorder, that birthday party. There is something, it's not a joke. Not only is it an erase, there's a flying erase on that camcorder. Now, I don't know if they have them on the new ones, but there's an older camcorder, something called the flying erase. And a flying erase, I said to myself, that is it. That is exactly what tshuva is about. Tshuva is about taking an event in your life and undoing it, getting it off the record, scraping it, scratching it. It's no longer there. That's what tshuva means. Tshuva means you did something, and you're not proud of it, and it was wrong, and it's damaging to me. And I wish I hadn't, but I did. Tshuva means you go in and you erase it. It's no longer there. And not only do you erase it, you erase an entire action, entire conversation. You can even erase an entire summer. You can even erase a year. I don't want to go beyond that. I hope it's, <laughs> hope it's sufficient. But, but Shuva works. Shuva works, eradicates entire events, conversations, words. Does it make sense? It makes zero sense. If you think about it, it's absurd. It's dumb. It just doesn't, how does it work? You said something, it molded you, it shaped you, that's who you are. What do you mean you undo it? I don't know. But Hashem understands our nature. And Hashem gave us something called tshuva. And it works, it undoes, it takes it off. But you've got to use the process. You've got to use the process. And the process isn't always that simple. Now let me say something before we discuss tshuva. No one understands one thing. If a Jew walks into shul on Yom Kippur and says these words, I want the process to work, that alone the day is Mechaper, automatically, just the day itself, living through a day, 
being with the program automatically takes off some of your averas. It also makes no sense. But as long as a Jew is not lahachas, is not against the day, he walks into shul, even by the way, let's say you're honest, let's say you get sick. You wake up and you keep morning, I want to go to shul, but you get sick, and your mom is spend the whole day in bed, and you, you don't do anything in terms of tshuva. The day itself is machaper, it's a day that Hashem created, and with or without, as long as you're not menaged, as long as you're not working against the day, the day is machaper. However, there are levels to tshuva. Not everything is taken off by the day, and not everything is taken off, but going through the day and saying, now hates takes off. Now, to give you a mushal, uh, you guys will forgive me for this, but I'll give you a mushal just to understand how the system works. In, uh, I don't know when it was, about sometime in the 80s, when off-white suits were in in the summer, I used to wear an off-white suit, and I had the rabbinic approval for it because I once drove, drove the Roshiva somewhere, and uh, it was a summer, and I took, it was very hot, so I took my jacket off, put it over the back seat, in the back seat, the Rebetzin went like this. She held the material and go, Hoot, Barry, this is a nice suit. So I had rabbinic approval, and despite the fact that it may not have been yeshivish to wear a white suit or whatever, I wore my white suit in public. I once had somebody say to me, it's very interesting, I once had a Tamachachim, who was, I guess, a little from say to me, we were talking and learning in a Rebbe Mamish in the middle of Rebbe Kvega, back and forth, and all of a sudden he looks and he goes, aren't you embarrassed to be seen in public in that suit? It wasn't religious enough. For but whatever the case, point is, I used to wear this off-white suit. Imagine for a minute, I'm walking up the block in this off-white suit, and it's a rainy day, and a car comes by and splashes mud all over my once-white suit. Now, says the Mr. Shami, if you want to understand tshuva, here's how it works. First thing you do is you take off the mud. You take a cloth, or you take your hand, and you wipe off the mud. But after you wiped off the mud, there's still a stain. The way you get a stain off is you have to either take another baguette or the baguette itself and you have to rub. You have to rub it against one against the other. Sometimes you'll need a cleanser. Sometimes you'll need a strong, something strong to break up the bond. And you have to rub and apply the cleanser and rub and apply. But eventually, if you do the entire process, it comes clean. Says in the Sulashram, that is tshuva. I Meaning, no matter what you do, if you walk into shul and say the words, even without tremendous command, say the ashamnu, it takes off, it takes off the mud. Now, it won't totally eliminate the sin. There's still something there. There's still a stain. The more you rub, the more you get into it, the more you get into the cloth and really dig, the more that comes off. No matter what, something it does. But if you really, really want to eliminate not just the mud, but the stain, and not just the stain, but the shadow of the stain, and get it totally clean, it can be done. But it takes a lot, a lot of work. It takes a lot, a lot of courage, and it takes a lot of introspection, and it takes a lot of understanding that what I did was damaging to me. It works. It changes a person. Obviously improves a person. It worked for Rabbi Lozabar Dudi, Rabbi Lozabar Dudi, who reached the depths of depth. This man was depraved in commode. He can't even imagine the depths to which he sunk. And yet he reached a level that's not Shaykh. He was called Rebbe. So tshuva works. It doesn't make sense, but it does work because Hashem understands our nature, created us, and gives us the opportunity to do tshuva. But you have to use it, you have to work on it, you have to really try, and you have to really make it happen. Again, one of the big problems we have is we think Hashem's angry with us. Hashem's not angry with us. Hashem, again, we're not important enough for Hashem to be angry with us. If you want to know what Hashem's sense on Yom Kippur is towards us, I'll give you one simple mushal. When my son Shalomari was five years old, he used to... Now, when I was a kid, I was, I was rough and tumble, I was a pretty wild kid. But I saw my son on the monkey bars, and he's about six feet up, hanging by one foot, and I see the concrete under his head. 
And I said to him these words, Shalom Aryeh, please come down. And he said, don't worry Abba, I'm brave. I never thought I would say these words. I said, you may be brave Shalom Aryeh, but I'm nervous, please come down. And let me tell you what I felt at that point. Says the Chobos a father feels his son's pain like his own. The father feels to his son like the son is an extension of him. So that the father doesn't see the son up on the monkey bars, maybe cracking his head on the concrete. It's like an extension of him. It's a, there's a bond, there's an attachment. It's like the father himself. If you want to understand what Hashem feels, on Yom Kippur, Hashem is a Baal Rachamim with mercy beyond our wildest conceptions and understanding. And Hashem stands there, not angry, but Hashem stands there like a father waiting. Listen, I understand you messed up. I understand you're human. It's a tough world out there. Now use the system. Hashem stands there waiting for us to do tshuva. Not with anger, but with actual waiting, with love, with wanting us to clean up. If you want to muscle to what Hashem's relationship to us is on Yom Kippur, I think it's very simple. There is a reflex in a baby called a sucking reflex. When a baby is born, as soon as it comes out of the, the mother's womb, it instantly knows how to suck. You put a finger in the baby's mouth and it, it sucks and it knows how to swallow. Those are instant reflexes that babies are born with. Occasionally, you have a baby that's born without a sucking reflex. And it's a major, major issue because if the baby doesn't suck, how do you feed it? What do you say? Baby, you know, you're not going to thrive. Uh, yeah, little boy, you're going to die if you don't eat. I mean, you can't talk to the baby. It's one day old, right? You can't. So they have to all types of things. They have to try to feed it. Sometimes they have to actually feed it intravenously. It becomes a big issue. Now imagine for a minute, a mother gives birth to a child and the child is born without a sucking reflex. And she tries everything, she tries to feed it, she tries to get it to taste, she tries to, and nothing works. And finally they have to feed the baby intravenously. Could you imagine the mother getting angry? You stupid baby! What's the matter with you? Don't, when's your sucker? You, you're a stupid, what you, what's wrong with you baby? Why don't you just, just take the bottle? Don't you know I'm trying to help you? I'm trying to make you grow? It never happened. Why? Because the mother's not going to be angry at a baby. The mother wants the good of the baby. The mother wants the baby to grow. The mother wants the baby to thrive. Unfortunately, the baby's not doing what it should be. And I believe that is Hashem's relationship to us. Hashem wants nothing more than our good. Hashem created us not for any purpose other than to help us, to give to us. And Hashem understands that we've blown it in certain ways. And Hashem waits for us. Hashem created a system called Chuv. And Hashem waits there like the mother waiting for the baby to feed. I want nothing more than you should grow, you should accomplish. You should use this day because I gave you this day to clean up. Clean up your act. And Hashem waits there with literally like a mother waiting, like a father with love waiting for us to do what we could and should do. And a person understanding that, I think it's a whole different sense of what Yom Kippur is about. If you look at a person like Rebbe Dudia and you understand that what one true tshuva can do, change your entire life. Now it's true, I don't think any of us will ever do that, because we never hit bottom like he did, and we probably never rise up that quickly. But the bottom line is, if you just hear that a human being can accomplish quite that much, a human being who sunk to what the morale called, he was totally dovuk b'chol levav chol, madech, with everything, he clung to taiva, and so changed that he became Rebbe, you see the power of tshuva, it's remarkable. Other obstacles, yeah, the biggest obstacle is for us to wake up. But even when we wake up and understand that we've done, the key first step a person has to understand 
is that I need tshuva, not because Hashem's angry, not because Hashem's going to punish me. I need tshuva because these things have damaged me. These things are a part of me. These things are on my neshama, and I may forget about them. I may have done it five years ago, ten years ago. I may have done it last week. But it's a part of me, indelibly. When I leave this earth, everyone will see it. I will see it. The reason why I need tshuva is not so Hashem won't get angry at me, not so Hashem won't punish me. I need it for my growth. I also need it because it's very hard to grow when you have these things weighing you down. Yom Kippur is a phenomenal day. Rarely, rarely do human beings understand the value of the day. You know, Rav Dovah Kronenglass once said, if it was a mashkiach in Baltimore, he once said, if it weren't for the aim of the day, I'd be dancing a record. He used to feel such simcha, such joy on Yom Kippur, because a person can grow, a person can accomplish, a person can take up a whole pack, a whole pack of bad things, bad events, bad thoughts, that are stopping me, and he can get rid of them. Get rid of a week, a summer, a year, undo, flying a race. So it's a tremendous, tremendous day, and it's a very, very powerful day. But a person needs to understand what it's about, needs to understand Hashem's relationship to us, needs to understand how much Hashem wants us to grow, needs to understand, ain't a dover totally elabi. It's up to me. My parents, my friends, my brothers, my children, no one can help me. The fight's in me. If I could bring myself to this understanding, I've messed up. There's a concept called tshuva, and there's an unbelievable effect. And Hashem waits there for my tshuva. Hashem loves me, and Hashem wants me to just clean up, like the mother waiting for a child person can reach tremendous heights if you can reach down I want to close with just two observations the first observation is that Rabbi Huda Hanasi cried when Rabbi Huda Hanasi heard this event he wasn't there but he heard over this event Rabbi Huda Hanasi who was a Galador who was also the Machaber Mishnayis who was one of the greatest Jews certainly of his generation when he heard this event he cried and listen to what he said he said Yesh kana olama b'kamashanim. Most people take many years to acquire the olam haba. Yesh kana olama b'sha'achas. Some acquire it quickly. And then he said, Lo dayan. It's not enough for the bali tshuva that the makabel and so, but they call him Rebbe. Now those are nice words. Why do you cry? If anything, he just saw a powerful lesson. Look what you just saw. A man went from the depths of the depths to the heights. Look what just... Rebbe, you should be overjoyed. You should be dancing a jig. Look what a Jew just accomplished. He mamish went from being a bum to getting the title of Rebbe. Rebbe Hudonos, he should be dancing. Why is he crying? You know why I think Rebbe Hudonos, he cried? I think Rebbe Hudonos, he cried because this event was a lesson to him. This event was a lesson to him in the value of a moment. This event was a lesson to him in just how much a human being can accomplish with one firm decision. If a human being makes up and says, listen, I messed up. I'm unhappy with what I've done. And I want to change. And he reaches out honestly and earnestly and says, Hashem, please help me. It works. Not only does it work, a person can change his life. A person can eradicate a lifetime. Rabbi Elizabeth Dudia didn't erase a summer he spent years, years as a Baltaiva. He was known as Lohoniach, Zona Achaz. There was no Zona he didn't live with. It meant his whole life. This is what he was. He was one shtick Taiva. And in one moment, he took that whole history, eradicated it, and got the title Rebbe. You know what Tosa says on this? Tosa says the last line is that he was Mazuman. The Baskal came out and said, Rebbe Allah you know what that means? Mizuman means no din, no gehenim. 
most people, ruba the ruba, people end up spending some time in Gehenim, because there's some things that we've done improper, some things that we need cleansing for, except this man didn't. Rebbe Eliezer ben Dudya was escorted right into Ganadin, says Tosas, because there was nothing left to clean up. He didn't need Gehenim, he went right into Ganadin. And when Rebbe Hudanasi saw that, he cried. You know why he cried? Because he was overcome by the power of a decision, the strength of a moment, and he saw what a human being could accomplish, and he said to himself, did I, did I, the great Rabbi Hudanasi, accomplish in my lifetime that? If now I understand what a person can do in a moment, if now I understand how when a person reaches out to Hashem and begs, honestly, please help me, what he can accomplish, it was a lesson to Rabbi Hudanasi that he felt he didn't accomplish in his life what he could have. I have one last question that I think is worthy to think about, and that is, what actually made Rabbi Elizabeth do tshuva? A very strange event. He shows up at the zona, pays the amount, b'shas ma'isa. During the event, she's mafiach, she passes gas, and then she says these words, just like this won't return to its source, so too, Elizabeth Dudia will not return to tshuva. Now, madam, I don't mean to be rude, but who made you the Baal Musa of the generation? Since when did you get the title Rabbi Krohn? You're going to give Musa to the Like, lady, where are you coming from? What made you say that? Where, what, what do you care? Why are you saying that? Like, you ever wonder? Like, maybe it sounds a little funny. A zona is not like one of the high priestesses of Jude. You know what I mean? Like, this is the lowest of the low. Why is she saying these words? I don't have a raya but I believe that Pshat is, those words were not the words of the Zona. Those words were Hashem speaking to Elizabeth Dudia. I'll explain to you what I mean. To allow for Bechira, to allow for free will, Hashem hides Himself behind the scenes and rarely comes out in very overt manners. However, there are times when Hashem will change nature, Hashem will act in various ways, and there are times when Hashem puts Mishigasim in people's minds. Dumb, crazy things come over people and they do things, all part of the master plan. I don't believe this zone of thought on her own. Oh, let me start giving Elizabeth Dudia some Musr. It's, first of all, it's bad for business. But not only that, it's not, not what she's at. Hashem put a Mishigas in her head to say these words because Hashem waited for this Elizabeth Dudia many, many years. Because Hashem knew that he wouldn't come back until he hit bottom. But once he gets there, the right line and the right time can hit him, and who knows? Maybe, maybe he could do tshuva. And I think, gentlemen, that's something that happens a lot. Hashem waits. Hashem waits, like a marksman, sometimes waiting weeks, sometimes months, sometimes year, and years. And sometimes he'll send us a message. Sometimes the message is easy to hear. Sometimes it's not so easy to hear. Sometimes Hashem will have to wait a real long time, and sometimes Hashem will even give us a patch. Sometimes Hashem will have to knock us down. Sometimes we're not listening even when we get the patch. But Hashem sends His messages. And part of the lesson of life is to learn to listen, to open your ears and get the message. Hashem desires nothing else but us to be happy in this world and world to come. Hashem created us not for pay, not for money. Hashem has no ulterior motives other than our success and to give. Hashem also understands that we're human and we mess up. And Hashem waits for us desperately to return. And Hashem also sends messages in many different forms, but you've got to open your ears. I don't know if this was the only time Hashem spoke to Eliezer Berdudia, but I know this was the right time. And in each person's life, there are times when it's right. 
it's time when you're down and it's time when it's just the right moment and somebody says something or something happens or something comes over your mind often time that's Ashkacha that's Hashem directly trying to help us reach our potential we have right in front of us a tremendous tremendous day it's a day filled with joy it's obviously a somber day it's a serious day but it's a day that a Jew can accomplish can get closer to Hashem a day that a person can reach out to Hashem and ask for tremendous tremendous help may Hashem grant us all a lot of success a good year a good venture a, a gemach simetova one more time a plug for our group I got to tell you guys I think it's a tremendous chizik. I think we all need it um, there are tapes available anyone who wants and I wish you all a good good venture for more information about Tiferes B'nai Torah and the Shmuz or to listen to the Shmuz online please visit us at www.theshmuz.com or call 1-866-613-TORAH